Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we've got my friend Brian Rimza on the phone, and we're going to talk javelina hunting. Brian, how you doing? I'm doing good, Jay. How are you? Good. Before we get started and start talking hunting, I do recollect that a few days ago, it seems as though the Sun Devils actually put a stomping on the Wildcats. I just wanted to get your reaction to that. I don't, I don't recall that, so I don't. I can't. I don't know about. I noticed for like three days I didn't hear from you, and I was pretty. Now I know why because the Sun Devils and Bobby Hurley and the crew put a whipping on you boys. Yeah, they had a good game. There's no doubt. <laughs> are you are you like kind of reacting to that? Like you know, every blind squirrel finds a nut every now and then. You know, it does happen that way, but, uh, I mean, they beat us. It is what it is. I can't how much I can say about that. You know? <laughs> uh, I, had to, I, I just had to start the podcast with that. Um, Brian, obviously, I've had you on the podcast uh, quite a bit, and um, usually when I have you on the podcast, we're breaking down sheep numbers or talking about the big giant deer that you shot on the strip last year, uh, but uh, this topic i want to talk about javelina obviously we're coming up on and there's already been some javelina seasons uh as well and i believe the general firearm season is coming up you can probably tell us when that is but uh i get a lot of people asking questions about javelina and wanting me to do a podcast on javelina you're someone that i know that hunts you know basically every animal out there from doll sheep to coos deer to mule deer to elk to sheep uh but you also routinely love to hunt javelina um so i thought you would be a perfect guy to talk a little strategy talk a little um you know stink dots is what i like to call them um stink dot uh strategy and tactics and tips and um so it'd be a fun episode yeah javelina hunting fun i enjoy it so Primarily, the javelina hunting that you do yourself is archery javelina hunting. Um, can you talk a little bit about Arizona's structure of javelina hunts uh, as far as, I know they have some archery seasons, some handgun seasons, uh, uh, muzzleloader, and then they have a general rifle season as well. Talk a little bit about that hunt structure. Yeah, typically, um, Arizona javelina hunts start January 1st, and they go typically to the, like, the third Sunday of the month. I think this year was the 24th or 25th. So you basically have three weeks to hunt javelina with a bow, and then that last week of January, along with the first week of February, is reserved for the youth hunters to go out and hunt javelina, um, you know, with whatever means they see fit. But it's a rifle tag, so kids can use a bow or they can use uh, a rifle or whatever they prefer. And then the ham... Havelina season, the handgun archery muzzleloader season is getting ready to open. I believe it opens on Friday where you can use, uh, obviously, a handgun, uh, archery equipment, or a muzzleloader. And then after that is when you have your rifle hunt that opens up. So those seasons, um, obviously, a lot of guys like to have that archery season in January because a lot of times they also have an over-the-counter deer tag in their pocket so they can hunt. Uh, archery deer and over-the-counter, um, or excuse me, over-the-counter deer, and they draw for those archery permits. Uh, a lot of the archery permits across the state are fairly easy to draw, are they not? And it's very common that people 
even out-of-staters come and, and have both in their pocket <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, January is really an awesome time for uh, bow hunters in Arizona as well as the non-resident bow hunter that comes in from out-of-state because, yes, it's pretty pretty easy to draw an archery javelina tag. Uh, there's always javelina tags left over from the draw that you can purchase on a first-come, first-served basis in a variety of different units for a variety of different seasons. Uh, one of the things that Game of Fish changed maybe five years ago is that they went from where you could only harvest one javelina in a season to where you can now harvest two. And so that gives you the opportunity to not only have an archery tag in your pocket, but you could also have uh, a ham tag or a rifle tag in your pocket uh, you could have two archery tags in your pocket as long as they're for different hunt codes. So you can't have two of the same tag, but uh, in the place I hunt, I have a tag in 20A, and then I usually always have another tag in 20C, so I can basically hunt uh, both sides of the road, if you will. And so it, it makes it kind of fun, and, you know, Havelina are a great bow hunting animal, in my opinion, because it's just the hardest part about Havelina is simply finding Havelina. Brian, you're also, um, I don't know exactly what your role is with bow, bow hunting. It's bow hunting in Arizona, the record book. I don't know if you're the chairman or what you are, but um, Havelina also has a, a portion in that book as well, does it not? And you guys keep records of uh, Havelina that have been shot by bow hunters. Talk a little bit about bow hunting in Arizona. I know it's a little bit of a side topic, but um, talk about your role with that, that record book. Yeah, I'm the chairman of... Uh, the Bow Hunting in Arizona Record Book Committee, and you know we're responsible for basically uh, developing and maintaining the records for archery harvested animals within the state of Arizona. One of the animals that we do recognize is a javelina, and we, you know, javelina is important because it kind of gives people that first opportunity at success with a bow um, because they're really made for bow hunting. And it gives, oftentimes it gives people their first opportunity to harvest an animal that qualifies for some form of a record book. And for javelina, we, we measure the skull to determine, you know, the size of the javelina and where it ranks in the book. And it's the length of the upper portion of the skull and the width of the upper portion of the skull added together is what gives you the total score. Um, the record book gives you an idea of kind of where some of the bigger javelinas tend to come from um, down in the southern portion of the southeast portion of the state where you've got some of the larger ag fields and stuff. They tend to kill some really large javelina, not only in body size but also skull size. Um, but it's a good resource to start when you're trying to figure out where to look to hunt javelina as well as if you're trying to look for javelina that are bigger than some of the other javelina. But uh, javelina really gives everyone an opportunity to to contribute to the record book, and it's a pretty cool uh, cool animal. It's unique to Arizona, and it you know we hunt it the same way that you hunt a lot of the animals in the desert of Arizona. You spend a lot of time behind glass, um, along with some other methods. But uh, we'll get into those. Yeah, I mean, so generally, overall, if you have someone that's interested in you know taking a first timer or people that are new to hunting that want to work on their stocking skills and what have you, it's really the perfect animal because they're not really big. You can shoot them and, you know, throw them over your shoulder and hike them back to your truck. 
Um, you know, they don't see very, very well. Um, they rely on their nose and their hearing mostly. Um, and so when you say they're a perfect animal for bow hunting, like literally they're a perfect target animal for bow hunting because they do typically allow you, as long as they don't smell you, uh, you can use your eyes and your senses to stock in fairly close and get into bow range, can you not? And when you say they're a perfect, you know, archery animal, is that what you mean? Yeah, I mean, it, the hardest part, I said it once and I'll say it again, I'm sure, is that the hardest part about hunting javelina with whatever weapon choice you choose is simply finding them. Once you've find, found the javelina, you've really done a good portion of the, the difficult part, and now it's a matter of working in and getting, you know, getting close enough if you're hunting with a bow or getting close enough if you're hunting with a gun to take a javelina. And the reality is that, I mean, their number one sense is their smell. So as long as you can get the wind right, you know, they tend to make quite a bit of noise. They're low profile to the ground. They don't see real well. So they give you a lot of opportunity. Um, you know, if you make a mistake or something, you can usually get away with it on a javelina. And they also give you the opportunity to stock them with multiple people. Uh, my wife and I are the ones that are typically hunting Halloween together, and we we pulled the double this year, and I think that was the third or fourth double that we pulled on the same herd. And it's always fun because you never get to stock. Nobody stocks a deer with two people. Nobody stocks an elk with two people unless someone's a caller. You know, it's typically a solo operation, especially when it's a spot-and-stock type situation because you're trying to limit movement, limit noise. But with Havelina, it allows that opportunity to hunt with friends, hunt with family, and work together to, you know, get a couple Havelina down on the ground. Brian, I would estimate that you've probably harvested 20-plus Havelina. That's just a guess myself uh, that, that, that you've harvested, you know, personally. Um, but I would also probably say you've doubled that with the number of people that you've helped and what have you with family, friends, what have you, harvest javelina. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but the javelina are actually a collared peccary. They're actually in the rodent family. Um, they're generally, you know, what, 40 pounds, maybe big ones get up in the 50-pound range. Um, they're typically, what, uh, maybe 18 inches maybe 20 inches tall on some of them, uh, maybe, you know, from, from snout, from the nose to their butt, or probably, what, about uh, 24 to 30 inches maybe. Um, and, uh, you know, usually when I glass them up there in family groups, you know, you see boars, you see sows, you see piglets, you see them all. Um, and... Correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, like javelina hunting, like you said, the hardest part is finding them. But then sometimes, like, you could find two or three different herds easily in a day, and they're not an animal that, like, goes and beds up. Like, they're out feeding in the open, so they're just a great target animal as far as being able to glass all day and find them all day, are they not? Yeah, I mean, you can hunt javelina all day long. One of the things that's really neat about them is that, you know, on colder weather days and stuff like that, you don't have to get up, you know, in the dark and hike up to a hill and be sitting there at first light because javelina won't start moving until things start to warm up. So, I mean, it kind of lends itself to kind of a more casual style hunt. And you can, can honestly, 
you know, hunt them and find them all day long. If it's hot outside, they obviously are are uh, definitely going to bed up earlier, just like any other animal. Um, as far as you're talking about, they are referred to as a collared peccary is more like their formal name. Uh, they're part of the, the mammal family. Um, for a long time, they were thought to be part of the pig family, but they're not. And um, your sizes were pretty close on everything that we've, we've referred to. And, I mean, I think this podcast is more for the person who's trying to be successful on a javelina for the first time or first couple times. And, you know, I, the number one thing, in my opinion, as far as trying to be successful on harvesting these javelina is, is finding them. And what I mean is that I spend a lot of time behind glass and what that, for me, though, it's not, unlike a deer hunt where I'll typically find a designated location that I want to hike to and get there and spend a lot of time glassing, if I'm hunting a new area for javelina, I spend a lot of time moving and glassing, meaning that I don't get out of my truck and hike miles. I may get out of my truck and hike a couple hundred yards up to a knob where I can look at a bunch of country. If I don't see anything, I'll move to the next spot and continually to move constantly until I find the javelina. Once I've developed my spots where I know javelina are there, then I will spend more time in that location on that glassing knob because I know the Havelina have been there in the past and I'm just trying to pick them out. But if I don't have spots that I've developed over time and I'm hunting a new area, I spend a lot of time moving and glassing because typically if they're in the real thick, low stuff, you're not going to see them. But if they're up where they should be, kind of on the side of the hills or in some low rolling stuff, and you know, you've got to glass it, pick, and if you don't find them, move on to the next spot. What would you say uh, general tips are for finding javelina, like prime javelina country? What does that look like to you? Uh, I mean, it, it varies throughout the state, but obviously, I mean, javelina tend to eat prickly pear a lot. They tend to spend a lot of time rooting around um, in the ground, and I tend to hunt the central part of the state, and I've also hunted the southern part of the state. But I'm typically looking for good rolling ridges or even mountainsides that have some form of kind of prickly pear along with some grass on them that provide not only seed but also provide some cover for the javelina. And they tend to, once you find where javelina are at, you tend to be able to find them in a similar area. They may not be on the same hillside, but, I mean, I've had several years where I've gone into the same hillside and found the pigs on the same hillside within a couple hundred yards where I found them the year before. So they don't seem to venture real far unless they start getting pushed or moved around by hunters. Um, and typically the only time of year that they're really pushed around by hunters is in January and February. Uh, the rifle hunts can, you know, a lot of people go out. It's a, I think it's a one-weekend hunt, so there's a lot of people that are out for that one weekend, so you tend to, tend to have some hunting pressure. You know, you talk about prickly pear. Um, talk about uh, north-facing slopes, south-facing slopes. It seems like I've found a lot of javelina just out in the sun, just on south-facing slopes, pretty exposed. You know, unlike deer who spend, you know, some time out feeding, but then they'll go and basically hide for the day or bed up. Javelina kind of do the opposite. It seems like they're just midday, your best chance is just to kind of look right out in those open, sunny slopes. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, they definitely like to be out in the sun, especially on colder days. Um, this year, for example, it was really cold on the 1st, and I think it had snowed the night before, and it was in the low teens when I went out with uh, my wife. And, you know, we spent 
in the same spot, spent several hours glassing in the same spot, and I didn't actually glass up the javelina until 11:30, and they were in the wide open sun on a wide open ridge that I know I would have that I didn't miss them. They just weren't there, and then finally when they pushed up into that, you know, those wide open sunny sunny sloped faces, it made it a lot easier to pick them up. And I mean, typically, if javelina were by themselves, it'd be really hard to spot. But when they're in big groups and you got multiple ones moving, it helps and makes it easier to pick them up and spot them. I mean, they can get into some thick stuff that makes it hard. But in their bigger groups, and they like to be in the sun, especially when it's cold, because it helps warm them up. Um, I, you know, on colder days, they'll be laying out in the middle of the sun in a big pile where all the javelina lay, lay together. Trying, We call it a pig pile, trying to kind of keep each other warm. But, I mean, they'll do that right in the middle of the sun where they're getting hit by the sun and they're getting warm from, you know, the other members of the herd that are laying next to them. You talk about um, finding the javelinas, you know, the hard part, and then you talk about once you find them, then you're able to move in. Um, talk, you know, talk about, okay, you're hunting. It's that 1130 time. You finally spot the pigs. Typically, how do you go about um, stocking in on them? Well, the number one thing for me is to get the wind right. So, I mean, whatever the wind's doing, you got to get it right. So, you know, if you can get the wind right and if you have a little bit of a breeze, typically, I mean, that's the, the number one thing that will get you in trouble is the wind with Havelina. So, for me, it's a matter of making sure I, got, I have the wind right. They typically don't move real far um, if they haven't been busted around. So, I mean, you can take some time to figure out, okay, if you get up to a spot and the wind's not right, then you've got to circle around and get to a better spot with the wind uh, in your favor. Because once you get the wind right, you can pretty much move right in on Havelina up to you get into that, you know, 50, 60 yard range where you kind of got to slow down a little bit and start picking your way through them. Because they're notorious for, you'll see one pig that you'll lock in on and you'll be working toward that pig and you won't, you won't, you'll miss the one that's 20 yards closer standing in the prickly pear, eating prickly pear pad until he busts out right in front of you. So it's really, um, important to kind of slow down once you get close and not get locked on on the one or two pigs that you can see because there's usually pigs closer to you that are the ones that usually get you busted. Speak about when you do actually bust them, what, what are things that you do as a, as a bow hunter specifically? If you bust that, you know, you're looking at some that are out there at 60 and you bust one at 20, what's your standard protocol of what you do? Well, there's a couple different situations with that. Pigs are usually in bigger herds, so I mean, if the herd is spread out over a hillside and you've only busted a couple of them and they haven't necessarily run right into the middle of the herd, oftentimes I've busted a pig on the outskirts of a herd and had them run off, and the rest of the herd has no idea what happened. So I just keep moving in and do my thing and work into the other pigs that don't know what's going on and haven't even, like, raised their head up from feeding and worked in on another one. The other thing that you can do is varmint calling is really, really uh, an effective way to bring the javelina back to you or to bring them out of a thick area um, if you're working in on javelina and, you know, it's approaching that midday and they're starting to move into the thick bottoms or something to bed up and you want to try and bring them out of those bottoms towards you. Using a javelina call uh, can be very, very effective method. Um, Rick Forrest with Arizona Hunting Extreme out of Tucson, has a uh, javelina call that he's perfected over the years, and you can reach out to him on Facebook and order one of the javelina calls from him. I have one of his javelina calls, and they're 
they're pretty exceptional, and um, they having to really respond well to, to calling them back in. I would say with a bow, the hardest part about calling them back in because they usually come in full tilt is once you see them bearing down, you probably need to stop calling and figure and pick a spot name when you go to shoot one because it's really easy to get caught in the excitement and just kind of shoot at a blob that's moving past you and miss um, because they do come in full tilt, and, I mean, they will run between your legs, around you a couple feet. I mean, they are coming in full bore. And a lot of times if you stop calling when they get into that 20, 30-yard range, they'll kind of stop for a second, try and figure out what's going on and give you a chance to take a better shot. Is blind calling something that you would do if you haven't, like, if you're sitting there glassing and haven't seen them, would you just, like, start blowing the distress call and see if something comes, or is it more if you blow a stock, then you start calling? No, you can blind call. Um, it's not, it, it's, I've done it before, and it's, it's very effective. It has worked in the past for me. Typically, when I'll blind call for Havelina, it's if I'm working kind of a flat where I don't have much elevation, and I know there's a bunch of javelina sign around, and it's a spot where I think that there's some javelina close, then I'll blind call and see if I can pull those javelina toward me. Again, make sure you've got the wind coming from the direction you think the pigs will be coming so you have the wind in your face. And uh, But blind calling does work. Um, I, you know, there's really kind of three methods, I guess, to hunting javelina. Traditional, I would say, is, you know, glassing javelina and then, kind of still hunting through the thickets in some flatter country can be very, very effective. Um, just working slowly through some country that you know that Havelina are there, and then um, calling is the third method that I would say is, is also extremely effective. I like to spend a lot of time behind the glass. That's my favorite method of hunting. But uh, it's always important to have a call with you no matter what method you're doing because it can give you a second opportunity. You talk about areas that you know javelina are there. Talk about some of the sign that javelina leave that indicates to you that, okay, there's pigs here. Like, what are you seeing that, that tells you, yeah, pigs are right here? Most commonly, it's, it's real fresh rooting or fresh, uh, fresh um, prickly pear that they've been eating on. Um, sometimes you'll have like cattle that'll eat on a prickly pear, but when they eat on a prickly pear, it's usually a clean bite off the prickly pear. There's no striations from the prickly pear left, whereas like javelina, when they bite it and pull it off, there's a bunch of striations left that they didn't get it all off in like a clean bite based on their teeth configuration compared to a cow. But I mean, if you get into where um, you have lots of sign, you know, you, you're seeing a lot of fresh rooting. You know, you may have just had a rain. There's a bunch of tracks around. Or it may be that you spotted javelina from a long ways off, worked in on, into that spot, and now you can't find where the javelina have moved off to. And so in order to locate them or get them to come in, you decide to start calling and bring them back toward you. That happens uh, quite often. Sometimes if you're by yourself or you don't have a spotter and you work over into them and they move, you have a hard time relocating them. That's a lot of times where you can utilize that call to bring them into you. A lot of times I'm glassing in Mexico, and I'll just be, because, you know, January I'm down there, and I'll just be glassing along, and you'll hear the pigs. Um, they'll be squawking at each other. Talk a little bit about 
you know, just listening and what you're listening for and how many times you haven't been able to see them, all of a sudden you hear them and then you hone in, you're like, oh, okay, there they are. Yeah, that's happened several times, you know, when I go to my glassing spots and I'm sitting on the knob trying to find the Havilland and all of a sudden I'll hear it. Oftentimes what you hear is you either hear the, the little piglets will be squealing a little bit and you can hear that, or you'll hear the the boars getting into it with each other and start fighting and popping their teeth a little bit at each other. So they will make noise and will give them away oftentimes. And it's, I, it's happened half a dozen times to me. And, you know, sometimes you know they're there and it takes you 30 minutes to figure out where they're at because you're only getting a little noise here and there, but you know it's from Havilland and you know they got to be right there. So those people out there listening that may have javelina tags and say they've never gone javelina hunting, obviously there's lots of parts of our state where you've got javelina, you know, you get them all the way up into the pines, you get them in the pinion juniper, but like from a, from a topographical and just vegetation standpoint, like what should people be looking for specifically, no matter what unit they're in, like Give, give, like, your perfect, like, terrain of, of, of what to look for. I mean, my perfect terrain is either, like, a, the side of a mountain or side of a hill or low rolling fingers that are covered with, you know, decent amount of grass and then have quite a bit of prickly pears um, around them. That doesn't, I mean, depending on the part of the state that you're in, that doesn't, you may not find that, but you'll find javelina there um, in other places. But that's the place... I hunt central Arizona, you know, just outside of Prescott, and I'm typically hunting, you know, rolling fingers that are covered in grass and covered in prickly pear, and that's what I'm looking for when I'm trying to find those javelina. But I've killed javelina at the top of the highest mountain where you where you think they shouldn't be and where you see, you know, expect your whitetail to be or something like that. And, I mean, I've killed them out in the flats. It's just a matter of kind of, where they move around to and what they're doing and, and you know, what terrain you're in. But I'm looking for a new Havilena hunter. I'm looking for nice ridges that are covered in prickly pear. That's what I'm looking for, ridges or, or mountainsides or things like that that are covered in prickly pear. That's what I want. Brian, I want to take a second here and thank the sponsors of this podcast, and then we're going to get into shot placement and such on Havilena. I want to thank my friend Cody Nelson over at GoHunt.com at the, at the um, gear shop. He is the optics authority. I call him the glassing guru. If you reach out to Cody and have any optical needs, if you reach out to Cody, he can talk to you about the best binos, tripods, spotting scopes, uh, et cetera, rifle scopes. And you can reach him at 702-847-8747. That's extension 2. You can email him directly at optics at gohunt.com. Uh, he handles all of the sales there at GoHunt. They have a full line of optics there at the GoHunt gear shop. And if you uh, mention my name, he's going to take care of you. He's been routinely over the last couple months taking care of my listeners. And I want to thank them for their sponsorship. I also want to thank GoHunt, the insider portion of gohunt.com. And uh, remind you guys that you get a $50 Go Hunt Gear Shop gift card if you use. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash J Scott. Uh, I feel that Go Hunt Insider is the best Western hunting resource when you're trying to research draws and 
they write great strategy articles on how to draw on these different states across the West. Uh, go to GoHunt.com forward slash Scott and get that $50 GoHunt Gear Shop gift card just for signing up. <clears throat> I also want to thank uh, Kuyu. That's K-U-I-U, Kuyu Ultralight Hunting, Kuyu.com uh, for their sponsorship. That's the uh, clothing and gear that I wear. I know, Brian, uh, you enjoy wearing the Kuyu gear as well. Uh, I also want to thank uh, CanyonCoolers.com. If you use the JScott19 promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount on all orders. Uh, Phonescope.com. If you use the JScott19 promo code, you're going to get 10%. That is the digiscoping adapter that I use for my photos and my videos uh, on my Instagram account. And then last but not least, OnXMaps.com. Uh, use the JScott19 promo code to get a 20% discount on all orders there at onxmaps.com. Brian, talk about shot placement uh, there for uh, Havelina, both with a bow and with a firearm, um, where it may differ from, say, uh, you know, shooting a deer or an elk. Yeah, I think the hardest thing about Havelina is that they're low profile. Oftentimes, they're kind of obscured by some grass and things like that when you're close in on them. And it's hard to pick a spot. But my general rule of thumb is to shoot them in the middle of the body when it comes to height up and down. And then they have a collar that kind of goes from their throat area up to, I don't know, 10, 12 inches behind their ears. And what I try to do is find that collar and shoot about four inches behind that collar. So right on the back point of the shoulders where I try to shoot a javelina, sometimes it can be hard to kind of pick that spot and figure that spot out. And oftentimes I think the biggest mistake in shooting javelina is that people generally shoot too high because javelina have fur that, that is like four to five inches tall up on the top of their back. So there's a bunch of fur there that, that, where there's nothing there to hit. And so I think they generally shoot too high and uh, just blow through the top of the, the fur on a Havelina's back, or they'll shoot a little too far back and just catch mostly guts uh, and not, you know, up in the uh, chest cavity. So, I mean, to me, right on that shoulder is a really good spot to shoot because if you hit a Havelina in the shoulder with a bow, the Havelina's going to go down, and if you hit them there with a rifle, they're going to go down. Um, but those, that's what I, I look for that collar, and I look to come about four inches back of that collar right in the, right in the middle of the body elevation-wise. Good stuff. And um, talk about how hardy javelina can be as far as, you know, if, if you hit them good, do they go right down, or are they pretty tough animals as far as uh, shot placement? Um, javelina can be pretty tough to, can be pretty tough sometimes, and it's not, I mean, the shots can be good, but if you don't watch where they go, they don't tend to bleed a ton. I mean, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But if you hit a Havelina back in the gut, um, they can go a long ways, and they'll just, you know, hole up in a clump of rocks or hole up in some thick brush, and you may walk right by them and never find them. Um, if, I, when I, if I shoot a Havelina too far back or shoot him somewhere where I know he's hurt but he's still kind of able to move, I try to stay on him. Uh, rather than like a deer I might let lay, I have Lena I try to stay with because if they're moving and making noise, I usually can get on them and find them, and they won't get away from me. 
good stuff. Um, you know, Havelina have gotten the reputation that they're mean and that they're ornery and that they'll chase after you. Have you noticed that at all? I've never experienced a Havelina that was, so to say, mean or trying to chase after me. Uh, they do kind of get that reputation. And I know people have had some encounters with Havelina that maybe they exhibited some aggressive um, behavior, but I have not personally ever had that happen. Do you specifically target um, boars or sows? And, like, when you go out now when you're hunting, like, do you specific, specifically target one or the other? I mean, I try to, to stay on the, the biggest thing in the group if I can, but to be honest with you, when things arrows start flying and chaos starts happening, I just look for a mature javelina that doesn't have any young with it to, to shoot. Because typically when I'm, Nowadays, when I'm hunting, I'm hunting with my wife, and she typically gets first dibs, and I try to clean up whatever's left after the fact. Bat cleanup? What's that? Your bat and cleanup? Yeah, typically the way it works. She gets first dibs, and she usually makes a count with her first arrow, and then I'm left to kind of pick one out and move it around. <laughs> Shoot like one running. <laughs> yeah. You get, the, you get the shot running over the hill. Um Pretty cool stuff. So would you agree that javelina are an incredible animal to take kids out as well and completely new hunters because they get to usually see them, they get to experience the thrill of like, oh, I'm about to shoot something. And then, you know, as, as far as a target, you know, pound for pound, it's a pretty good target to shoot at, correct? Yeah, javelina, you know, the weather's good. Typically speaking, it's not too terribly cold in Arizona. You have, it doesn't get light real early, so it's not like you're spending, having to get up at 2 in the morning to go out and chase them. And honestly, for new hunters, kids, and adults alike, and people who are not quite sure if they want to hunt, they don't seem to have as much problem shooting a javelina as they would, so to say, shooting a deer, because not a whole lot of people look at a javelina as, like, cute as where some people will look at a deer and think it's cute. Um, so it is a good first-time learning opportunity, and it's something that everybody can enjoy every single year. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, feel free to, if, if you think we've missed anything on the javelina, feel free to um, spill it out there. But um, what's your outlook on this year as far as applying for elk and antelope uh, in the state of Arizona with the moisture and stuff that we've had. What are you, what are you thinking, Brian? I, I think it's going to be a great year. So if you're sitting on a pile of points, I think it's a good time to uh, really consider casting those in. I, I think that we had a really bad year last year, um, which meant that some of the, some, a lot of the bulls didn't live up to potential. So some of those bulls didn't get shot and made it through. Um, so I just think it's going to be a good year if we can continue this winter moisture. I think that we're looking to have a really solid, you know, antler growth year, and the animals should be healthy, and uh, it could be a, a lot of fun. I mean, I'm looking to hopefully draw a tag myself, but we'll see. You know, I, I need a little bit of luck on my side. I have some points, but not quite enough. Um, so antelope, you know, antelope was a decent year last year. They tend to be pretty hardy animals. Uh, I'm not an expert on animals or on antelope by any means. I would say if, you know, you're sitting on a pile of points and you're trying to figure out what to do, 
Um, there's a couple of resources out there that have just put out some really good info. Um, Eli Grimmett just put out his breakdown of the top six units in the state and why. You can find it on their Facebook page, Pronghorn Guide Service. Um, it's really good info for someone who doesn't know all the other units in the state. A lot of times we only focus on the units we've either been in or we focus on units that we know people have hunted. And, you know, I'd encourage you, if you got a pile of points, you waited 25, 26, 27 years, whatever it is, do your own research. Figure out what works for you. Figure out what you're honestly looking for uh, in an antelope. I don't, you know... Killing an 85-plus inch antelope is not an easy task. It's not something that's around every corner. I think a reasonable goal is trying to kill an 80-inch antelope uh, with whatever tag you have. Um, but a lot of guys have some high expectations because they've waited so long for a tag. But uh, Arizona's got great antelope, but, I mean, 85-inch buck is a giant buck, and there's not a lot of them running around. But then do your own research. Look at all the resources out there. The Internet provides you so many resources to look at and figure out what's, what's around, what are you looking for. Do you want a good hunt with less, less people? Do you want a hunt that has more permits? Um, do you want to just hunt a particular area? You don't care about the size of the bucks. I mean, do what works best for you and what your ultimate goal is, but you've got to figure out what that goal is before you apply. That's good advice. Um, Brian, you you have harvested some awesome trophies um, in your hunting career. You just shot a just giant buck um, archery season. You typically, well, let me back up. You're one of the best archers in the state as far as shot. You know, when you do go to archery shoots and stuff, you always finish very, very high. Um, I noticed that you recently switched uh, from one bow to the other. I get a lot of archery questions. I typically say you need to ask Art, uh, Brian Rims or Daniel Willett, two of my archery uh, nut friends. Um, talk a little bit about your setup, what you've switched to. Um, you know, has that, has that changed your arrows? Talk a little bit about uh, your archery setup that you're shooting right now. I mean, the one thing I will say is that as archers, we tend to mess with our setups way too much, especially if you're a hunter um, and, and you dabble in 3Ds. You tend to mess or tinker with everything. Uh, one of the things that I've kind of learned over the years is that I find something that works, and I just tend to stick with it, and that's been real successful for me. Uh, recently, I just switched from Elite to shooting for Bowtech, and, uh, you know, I really like the Bowtech bows, the way they feel, the way they shoot for me. And that was, you know, one of the reasons that helped me make a decision on where to, what bow to shoot was best for me. Currently I'm shooting a Bowtech um, Realm, and it's a great bow. I love it. You know, it shoots real good. I've got another one on order that I'm waiting for, and, you know, it'll probably be a couple months before it comes in. But, you know, I try to find – there's a lot of great bows out there, Um and you got to find what what you're looking for in a bow and what works for you. The Bowtech brand has been around for a while, pretty solid. Um, but, you know, I encourage everyone when you're buying a bow, no matter what, you know, whatever bow you may think you want, you've got to go out and shoot them. Figure out what bow you like, what feels best. Any archery shop in the state, um, I know pretty much all the owners of all the archery shops in the state They'll set a bow up for you, let you shoot it, figure out what you like. Um, 
And if you go to an archery shop and they won't set a bow up and let you shoot it, then you probably should look somewhere else. But go out, find what you like, you know, what works best for you. My current total setup is shoot, I'm shooting a Bowtech Realm at 67 pounds with gold tip, uh, Pro Hunter 340 arrows, and then I shoot a Grave Digger um, chisel tip broadhead, 100 grains. I use Blazer Vein, and I'm using a Trophy Taker rest as well as a CBE uh, Tech Hybrid Pro sight, and I shoot Scott releases. And so that's, you know, my setup, oh, as well as tight spot bow quivers. That's a setup for me that's worked really well. And, you know, when you find something that works well for you, I would, you know, consider sticking with it and just working um, working to perform your skills with that particular bow. I, I mean, the one switching a bow for me, it takes a little bit of time to kind of figure out what each bow likes best and how you shoot it the best. And, I mean, they're not... They're not all created equally, and I mean, honestly, we're all, as humans, we're different. We're all created differently, too, so I mean, certain bows don't work well for certain people, and so you just kind of kind of figure that out, go to your pro shop, talk to those guys. Um, if I have questions or can't figure something out, my go-to man is Daniel Willett. I mean, he's a plethora of knowledge when it comes to bows, and I rely on him a lot. Um, I haven't... Sh- shot as much in the 3D world as I'd like right now just because uh, work changes have got me working Friday night until 6 a.m. Saturday morning, so I don't, it's hard for me to shoot a tournament that starts at 8 a.m. when I get off work at 6 a.m., so that's, you know, the only thing, one of the reasons why I haven't shot as much, And but, uh, you know, hunting for me is kind of the, the primary goal, and then, you know, shooting 3D and stuff is just secondary to keep my skills honed in and doing well i've been real fortunate to be pretty successful on a variety of different animals brian don't you think with all of the um great technology with bows and such that guys can try and get into that you know routine of wanting to get a new bow every single year and that maybe some guys should shoot because of of of, you know the lack of shooting, so to speak, and the amount of time, like every couple of years, maybe get a new bow rather than just get one every single year and always have stuff changing on their bow. Um, It seems like a lot of people get to tinkering, like you said, and then they're just, when it actually comes down to crunch time and shooting an animal, they're just a wreck rather than, you know, every couple of years go ahead and upgrading and getting a new system. Well, I think there's a couple of things that can be done to combat that. If you like to tinker, that's fine, but buy two bows. Have a bow that you have set up that works for you all the time, and then have a secondary bow that you can mess with, change your stuff on, you know, play with, you know, satisfy that tinkering niche that you got or that itch that you have to tinker with stuff. And then if, you know, it's not doing what you want it to do, then go back to Old Faithful and make that work. So, I mean, to me... You can have the best of both worlds. You can have a bow that you like to tinker with and mess with and change up everything on, and then you can have your old faithful go-to bow that you know you pick it up off the shelf and you're going to be hitting X's no matter what you're doing. So I think you can cover both aspects of that niche, play with the new stuff while maintaining your old stuff, and it allows you to, you know, because every once in a while you're going to find something that's better than what you have and you're going to like it better. But there's a lot of tinkering and heartache and headache that goes into trying to develop and find that. I mean, I've had a lot of different bows throughout my life, and 
generally speaking, I just got rid of one of my favorite bows. It was almost five years old, you know, and sometimes it can be hard to, uh, to figure out, you know, what your, what bows your kind of, kind of be your favorite bow or your go-to bow, you know? For sure. Uh, Brian, I know that you've had, um, success hunting with your wife, uh, Nicole, who is, a uh, a uh, very successful uh, residential real estate uh, realtor here <clears throat> in the valley. Um, her schedule is busy, uh, but you guys have been able to find time to hunt together as a couple, and uh, you introduced her to hunting uh, before you guys got married, and now she loves to hunt with you. Um, you know, with her busy schedule as a realtor, as successful as she is, um, talk a little bit how important that is for guys out there that want to either get uh, their wife or their significant other, girlfriend, et cetera, into the sport of, of hunting. Any tips or advice you'd give them? Yeah, I, I mean, I will give you some tips and advice. If you want your significant other to enjoy that experience and you want her to be part of that experience that you share and, and what you love doing, then one make sure you give them all the things they need to be comfortable. So what I mean by that is don't take your significant other, your girlfriend, your wife out on her first hunt, and it's supposed to be 10 degrees, and all she's got is blue jeans and, you know, a light pullover jacket and a pair of tennis shoes. She's going to be miserable, and she's going to hate it. And some people may out there may be listening to this thinking, well, I don't really mind if she doesn't want to go with me because, it's something I like to do. Well, that's your business too. Um, but I think it's really important for kids as well as significant other and spouses, make them comfortable. We have the ability with today's technology, today's gear, to make them comfortable no matter what the climate conditions are outside. And recognize that where I might be willing to go out if it's going to be drizzling off and on all day long because it's not really going to bother me that much, Maybe that's a day that you don't go if you're planning on going out and you have the ability to cancel or reschedule because, you know, hunting's fun, but when you're taking someone for the first time, a kid, or you're taking a significant other spouse, they need to enjoy their time. And if you don't have them set up or you take them out when the weather conditions are just terrible, they're going to be miserable. And it's not, I mean, we've all been there. I mean, I love hunting, so a miserable day for me is not that big of a deal. But for those people who you're trying to get into it, trying to expose to it, um, you know, understand that they want to enjoy it. And so weather conditions, you know, what gear you have for them, all of that impacts, you know, their experience in the outdoors. I mean, Nicole loves to hunt. She's an incredible glasser. But she doesn't like it when it's super cold outside. And, I mean, that's just the way she is. And so I try to make sure that she has all the gear she needs to be warm to try and keep her feet warm, you know, and to try and make it enjoyable. And when you recognize the certain things that they don't tend to enjoy as much, then, you know, try to curb those experiences. And understand, this year, for example, it was like 10 degrees on January 1st when we went out pig hunting. And I had Nicole and my 13-year-old son was with us with me. And normally when I have Lena hunt, I take my razor and we roll around in the razor and hunt. Well, we left the razor that day in camp and we just drove around in the truck and we never left more than 
30 or 40 yards from the truck until we found pigs because it was cold. And I would get out of the truck and grass for an hour, get back in the truck, stay warm. And, and we did that. And, you know, we found two different herds of pigs that day from the truck. And it's kind of funny because Nicole glassed up one of the herds of pigs sitting in the passenger seat of my truck with the heater on looking through the front windshield. So, I mean, make it fun. <laughs> make it enjoyable. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, the weather doesn't cooperate or things don't cooperate. And recognize what hunt, you know, they don't want to go on and recognize that it's their hunt. If it's their hunt, do the things they want to do. Don't drag them five miles up and down three steep canyons if that's not something that they want to do and they want to enjoy. Great advice. Great advice. Um, buddy, well, I appreciate you coming on, uh, sharing some uh, experience and knowledge with us. Uh, do you have any hunts that uh, you know, you've got planned out on the horizon, anything that you're excited about or um, you know, anything on, on your, in your day book that you're, that you're pumped about? Well, I've got the annual turkey hunt up on the White Mountain Apache, and then I've got a San Carlos tag, which are always two exceptional hunts with the Griego family. And, you know, I love chasing spring gobblers around just like you do. So I've got that for sure. And then I'm hoping this fall I might uh, pull an elk tag. My dad and I have a pretty good shot to draw a Utah tag about a 50% shot, I think, to draw that tag. And then I actually just put in with your nephew for elk in Arizona. And, you know, we don't have a guarantee, but we've got a decent number of points that we might get lucky and pull something good. So I'm hoping that luck's on our side and maybe I'll have an elk tag in my pocket so I can scratch that elk itch and get out there and chase some bugle and bulls. That sounds good, buddy. Well, um, it's always great having you on the podcast. Uh, congratulations with uh, the success of of uh, your job. And uh, Nicole, she's killing it with the real estate, and you guys are doing great. It's always great to see you. Um, and I guess I just have one final thought, and that's just go Devils, buddy. <laughs> How did I know that's what you were going to say? It's all good. It's nice to have that rivalry between us. <laughs> so. right on buddy god bless you all catch you later thanks for coming on all right later bud